0: I do not feel outrage. Okay, I could be outraged by the capital insurrectionists. I could be hateful towards them. I could just despise right-wing extremists. I could despise people who continue to maintain that Donald Trump won the 2020 election in the landslide. I could hate and despise and be outraged by all of those people. The fact that people are so angry, people who I disagree with politically are so angry, doesn't any longer prevent me from seeing their pain. I would like to make a few comments. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. This war is for the soul of America.
1: Because of the way this society is organized, you have to expect but there are going to be such explosions. Our side, our side, our side. Uh, we are a people in a quandary about the present, we are a people in search of our future. And as we say and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out.
0: All way this... It all seems a long way from a time when politics was a national passion and sometimes even fun.
1: We are attempting on a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. We're met here as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans, to solve that problem.
0: Welcome back to the Pothole Problem Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Miller.
1: And I'm also your host, Zane Emerson.
0: That's right. We, in year three, have some changes. And the biggest change is that we have a new host, so a co-host, my son Zane. Say hi to the people, Zane. Hi. We're a co-hosted, co-produced podcast now. And I said year three, even though this is only our second year of recording, uh, I'm going to count the lost year. A year ago... I stopped producing the podcast because of the pandemic and the difficulties of doing interviews and reaching out and also really, quite honestly, just to step back from engagement with this medium and engagement with a lot of things. And so that's why I took a year off and in deciding to come back here in, I'm going to call it year three, because why not? It is the third year, even though there was a lost year. I decided that it would make a lot of sense to bring my previously sometimes interviewer and call him sidekick, bring him in as a a host so that we could get a dual perspective. I trust and admire his research ethic and his excitement about politics. And so there's two chairs now, two microphones, two hosts for the Pothole Problem podcast. So do you want to say something about yourself, Zane, and why this is something that you wanted to do?
1: Sure. I'm a high school senior. I'm almost 18 years old in January. I've always been interested in politics and government. It's always been one of my main interests, obsessions, possibly. And I'm also a big podcaster. I've been listening to podcasts since I think I was nine. So I've I've always been in love with podcasts. So I thought, this is the perfect meld for that and i'm very glad that you invite me on to be your co-host
0: and i will chime in in advance your podcast fan claim and just point out that one you have consumed a tremendous amount of podcasts
1: some Uh, may say an inordinate amount of podcasts i
0: I don't think that that's you don't have to say inordinate. i think it's been a a lot of great stuff i've gotten podcast recommendations from you you are of the co-hosting team here by far the more experienced person in this medium that's actually one of the things that it's exciting for me is to have somebody who has listened to so many podcasts on history, politics, economics. You li- you listen to all kinds of stuff. Oh, wow, I M- to all myths.
1: I listen to all kinds of things. I can't even keep track half the time.
0: And it's not junk. So the format that we're going to adopt for year three, this is one of the other changes, uh, in addition to having a co-host, is that We're going to sometimes have interviews, and sometimes Zane and I are going to cover ideas and concepts. We're not really going to get into current events or daily issues. That's not really what this show is about. There's plenty of places to go tussle it with the issues of the day. Of course, we will talk about what's going on because it's impossible not to, and it's important, but we're really going to be operating at possibly a philosophical level. Is that too pretentious sounding to say? I
1: think that's actually probably the most accurate way to say it in a word.
0: We're going to be exploring ideas and concepts that are about how the world could be, not necessarily the way the world is. And of course, we will always stay grounded in the way the world is. Certainly, the interviews that we do are going to be grounded very much in the stories of the people that we talk to and their life in politics. That will remain consistent for the sort of reinvented Pothole Problem podcast. For this return episode, Zane is going to lead the way, and I'm going to let him take it from here.
1: Because we've come back from a bit of a hiatus, we thought it'd be great to revisit the very first episode of the Pothole Problem podcast, released September 30th, 2019, almost exactly two years ago to the day. And in this episode, I interviewed you about your ideas for the podcast, your motivations for the podcast. So I thought it would be great to bring some clips from that first episode and ask you questions about them, how do you react to them? How does that sound? It's an excellent idea. Let's go. All right. This first clip concerns your motivations for the podcast.
0: And that's why I'm doing this podcast now, because I want to extend my teaching, my discussion of American politics beyond the classroom.
1: So is that still the main reason you're doing this podcast? Have your goals or motivations changed at all? And also sort of a side question, why have you decided to reboot the podcast after a full year and take it up again? That is a
0: motivation that still exists, that I want to extend my reach beyond the classroom, and this is a way to do so. But that's definitely not the primary reason that I'm doing it anymore or again. And, you know, that segues right into your secondary question about why rebooting it. I wasn't going to come back because I thought, okay, I've done that, and it was interesting. I enjoyed interviewing people. But once I had stepped away from it, it seemed now no longer like a form of expression that I wanted to pursue. So that's kind of a personal artistic answer. As the school year approached and I began to get my sort of game face back on to go back into the classroom, I found a rejuvenated interest in exploring the world of politics in this particular way by getting, not just extending my reach beyond the classroom, but by getting myself in front of, next to, or probably for a while, on the telephone with people who are in the trenches of politics and have been for, in, in a lot of cases, a lot of their lives, and to find out what that's like. I have not lost my fascination with people who spend their professional and often personal lives deeply enmeshed in the practice, the sometimes the hardcore game of politics. And so I would say that my motivation for coming back is actually a little more personal is that I want to continue to have that connection with people who are in the trenches. The idea of bringing you on was also like, well, you're, you're a young ambitious, intelligent, interested, engaged person. And I want to have your perspective. And I want to hear what you do with interviewing people who are involved in politics so that there's just more subject matter for me to learn. So really I would say that ultimately the return of the Pothole Problem podcast is very personal for me to basically just continue to extend my learning about what a life in politics, lives in politics are like. And then, of course, what that will do for people who listen is it will extend my reach beyond the classroom, and I'm very glad to do that.
1: You're listening to the Pothole Problem podcast, created by White Tiger Productions. At White Tiger Productions, we create experiences. If you have an idea for a podcast, a workshop, or a show of any kind, we'll help you go from concept to execution. We provide creative direction and production support We've got a podcast studio, writers and storytellers, sound engineers and editors, designers, videographers, hosts, creative coaches, everything you need to manifest your creative potential. You name it or even vaguely describe it, and we'll take you from dream to finished product. White Tiger Productions. You can do what you think, and we can help you. Visit us at think.com and tell us what you're thinking about. I love, in your interviews, you always ask your guests the same question, which is, what is something that outrages you or used to outrage you? And so... I asked you that same question on your first episode, and we're going to hear what you said.
0: I do not feel outrage anymore. I feel like I'm done with outrage, and, and I hope that that's a permanent condition. And one of the reasons why I'm starting this podcast is because I feel as though it's, it's valuable for me to be able to look at the world of politics without outrage, an area that for sure is full of things that are outrageous.
1: So, are you still done with outrage? Do you think that has been a permanent change?
0: Well, I was, I would say, overstating how successfully I had banished outrage from my life. I think that at the time I was saying it, it felt true. And I do think that largely, outrage does not control me, but I have had, in the last year and a half, experiences that have been, I would say, very stressful. My political stress, is largely under control and has largely been under control for a really long time. I don't think I could have been teaching politics for 30 years in the intense way that I have if I were constantly feeling outraged by all of the things that are legitimately outrageous in the world. What happened, starting really in the run-up to the 2020 election, which of course occurred in the midst of the pandemic and us all still being very unused to the kinds of lives we were being forced to live as a result of it, I began, I only later noticed this, but I began to absorb other people's political stress. And there was a certain extent to which there was a lot of grabbing at me from people who knew me, former students, friends, family, to make sense of the horrors and the craziness and just the outright onslaught of total bullshit from their point of view, total bullshit. I normally am able to address people's political stress, without absorbing it. And that has been how I've survived as a teacher of politics for three decades. But under the multiple stressors that existed in the summer and fall of 2020, my normal practice of being able to perform what I consider to be a kind of an emotional jujitsu on other people's political stress to address it without absorbing it went away and I ended up absorbing a lot of political stress. And it brought me down, actually. At one point, I had to just stop all forms of communication, not just with people I knew, but with the world of news. And I got in bed and I got in and I gave myself permission to stay in bed for as long as I needed it. Luckily, it really was only somewhere about 24 to 30 hours where I felt like I just needed to be in bed. I was ready for it to be days. That was something that was a shock to me and, a, you know, in a way, a wake up call to renew my efforts to be able to stay immersed in the world of political news to stay engaged with people and their questing and questioning and desire for answers and soothing or more often their desire for me to join them in their outrage and double down on it with them and and to amplify it those motivations are always kind of work in tandem the desire to be soothed and the desire to like have your outrage amplified so i had to redouble my efforts to protect myself from that and really only feel my own political stress because i do have political stress. There are things I worry about. There are things I would like to happen, things I would like to see happen. I don't tend to talk about those because I vote that way. I vote, you know, with my ideas and my goals and my preferences. So I've had to essentially relearn my jujitsu and it has largely worked. But for a while there, And leading up to, I won't call it my collapse, because that's over-dramatizing a little bit, but but leading up to the point where it really took me down for, you know, a day that could have been a week easily, I was just really, really worried that the world was going to hell and we were all screwed. And I wasn't really worried from, like, I wasn't because rationally i was saying to myself okay it's it is it's bad now and it's different and this election is different than any other every other election i've seen since i've started teaching politics in 1992 and the pandemic of course is, is uh something that none of us have ever experienced but i knew rationally i'm like okay it's the world is not going to come crashing down but i felt that certainty and it frightened me a little bit because For me, and I think for any of us, that is not sustainable. We cannot sustain fear, outrage, anxiety, day in and day out. We did not evolve to sustain those hormonal levels of fright, panic, anxiety. We were evolved to experience those things to protect ourselves and get the hell to safety, and then to complete the stress cycle, and allow all those chemicals to flush out of our system. In the modern world, we actually can experience a consistent form of stress, anxiety, fear, dread, all of these things, and they can be never-ending, and we cannot let them be never-ending. What I'm trying to say is, I'm largely back to not feeling outrage. And in fact, I think that one of the things I've taken from this experience is a greater compassion for the suffering of people in this country and an appreciation for where this onslaught of outrage comes from and why it is so impactful on people and and the consequences it has. There's a level of suffering in this country that I think is really, it's hard to take. And the suffering is experienced by people who I disagree with politically, people who I disagree with uh, about religion, about economics, about spirituality, about any issue you could possibly imagine, everybody's suffering to a certain extent and to have come to an awareness of how powerful that suffering is transforming the way people interact with the world and with each other and how much rage, not just outrage, but rage and hatred and violent impulses is resulting from that suffering. To me, I come back to, okay, I could be outraged by the capital insurrectionists. I could be hateful towards them. I could just despise right-wing extremists. I could despise people who continue to maintain that Donald Trump won the 2020 election in the landslide. I could hate and despise and be outraged by all of those people. But I actually have come to appreciate that their suffering is at the root of things like why they believe that Jewish space lasers are controlling the weather or whatever it is the hell Jewish space lasers are supposed to be doing, and why they believe that Hollywood and political elites you know, are drinking the hormones of murdered babies from Canada, Canada or whatever. Like, you know, I've seen, I try to stay away from the QAnon stuff too much, but like, how do people believe these things? How do people believe that the election was stolen? How do people believe all this stuff? And how do they maintain their hatred for their fellow Americans? The fact that people are so angry people who I disagree with politically are so angry, doesn't any longer prevent me from seeing their pain. And I think that one of the things that I am hoping to be able to learn myself through bringing the podcast back is more about why people have so much pain, why this suffering is so widespread and why it cuts across gender and class and race and politics and geographic location and religious upbringing, there's plenty of suffering to go around. And when I compare the feeling of absorbing people's political stress with the feeling of having compassion for the suffering of people who I actually deeply disagree with and do think are taking uh, immoral actions and uh, destructive political actions, to feel that compassion for their suffering has been a very positive transformation for me. I don't want to be too like up with people because the world is still full of crazy shit and there is still a lot of bad stuff going on. And having compassion for somebody doesn't entail moral approval of their words and actions that are hateful and violent and destructive. It does, however, bring into play a different question, which is not what can we do to stop these people from making the world worse? The question is, how can we figure out where this is coming from and potentially do something to alleviate the suffering that is causing so much anger, so much hatred, so much outrage. It's really easy to relate to the suffering and pain of people who you love and people who you agree with and people who are on your side and on your team and your party. The harder thing, and I think the thing that is very important at this moment in human history, is to be able to actually try to care about and understand the suffering of everybody, and particularly those people who you find politically morally spiritually economically destructive
1: seems like you've got a lot of complicated and interesting thoughts on this
0: it's you know it's been a long year and a half and i have uh, i've had a lot of time to think
1: seems like it all right this podcast is called the pothole problem podcast so we have to revisit the pothole problem and it just so happens that you described what it was in our very first episode you ready to hear what you said oh i can't wait
0: it's one of those things where, you know, people driving along the road, they hit a pothole, they go, "God damn, government can't even fix the potholes. And at the same time, almost nobody, probably in fact, zero people ever are driving down the road, a nice smooth highway and says to themselves, thank you, the government for this beautiful smooth highway that gets me where I'm going and that brings goods and services around and that makes the way of life that I enjoy possible. It's really just a very simple form of of a negativity bias where we tend to see the bad things as opposed to the good things. The psychology that drives everyday people to say, god damn government can't even fix the potholes, but at the same time not have them say, thank you the government for this beautiful smooth road that makes my way of life possible. That is problematic because it leads to a perception of politics that's infused with negativity and that can generate negative emotions like outrage and anger and frustration. And those negative emotions have a pretty major impact on the way people think about the political system and think about themselves, and it has an influence on the way they make choices and the kinds of actions they take in the political system.
1: So that's your description of the pothole problem in the inaugural episode. Are there any modifications or amendments you'd like to make on that explanation? Anything you like to add? Anything like to subtract? I think that
0: the basic description of the pothole problem, that holds up. What I would say is different. My original understanding was largely that it stemmed from the transparency of what the government did for people. Then when that transparency disappeared, it only disappeared for a negative reason. I think that there's a lot of evidence in the last year and a half that people see what government does very clearly. And I think that's one of the things that a crisis does. It highlights the fact that the government is operating. During regular life, we don't think about the fact that the road came from somewhere. It's just the road is just the road, right? Uh, we don't have any reason to think about the fact that, oh, well, somebody had to build that road and somebody had to pay for that and somebody had to raise the funds for it and decide where it went and decide what the speed would be. It's really unnatural and unnecessary, honestly, to think about those kinds of things. And so I understand like why it is that we only think about the government when there's a problem. I think that what has happened with government efforts to combat the pandemic is that it has actually raised a deeper problem in American political discourse, which is not just that people have a negativity bias, and so they only see the things that government screws up, and therefore they have a skewed version of the government that skews towards thinking that the government is incompetent or idiotic. It's clear to me now that alongside of that negativity bias is also a deep and pervasive anti-authoritarian sensibility that makes people hostile to the government even when it's doing things that could be considered to be good for them. The idea that the government is your enemy is more deeply rooted in the American political psyche than I think I realized ever before. That is, I would say, a dimension of our political psychosis that. I've really, really come to appreciate over the last year. So the classic pothole problem, if I can call it the classic pothole problem, is still around. And I think it still contributes to people's negative perceptions of the government. But now it's more like people are just like, I can't believe you built this road. Why are you stealing my freedom? There's that aspect to resistance. At first I found it confusing. And then I found it, Maddening, and now I'm not sure I fully, completely understand it. But I do think that it's another version of our psychological propensities. But I think that this is a an entirely cultural version, not a deeply psychological version. Like the classic puddle problem, really, is about negativity bias, and that's that's built in. We we all have it in all kinds of circumstances. To me, the deeply anti-authoritarian streak in American political culture that goes all the way back to, that's why we had a revolutionary war. What I always find when I talk about the revolutionary war that's ironic is that the people who stirred up the revolution were themselves authority figures, right? They were political elites, but they drew on and intensified and rode anti-authoritarian sentiment. And that anti-authoritarian sentiment existed before the Revolutionary War, but it has definitely been powerful in in the American mindset ever since. The government is, at best, something to be suspicious of. And under a lot of circumstances, something to be feared, despised, resisted even when it's doing things that are for our own good. You know, there is a kind of classic adolescence to this, which is, I don't want you to do something good for me because I could do it for myself. Even if you're wrong that you could do it for yourself, you're going to have that stance and it's going to feel right. It's like, don't do not do something for me that benefits me because then I have to hate you for taking my freedom. That is... Aspect works in tandem with the general negativity bias to create a political landscape where people working in politics, whether it's policymakers or elected officials or people who are just handing out your driver's license or trying to check, you know, to see whether or not you've had your vaccination done, there is a hostility towards even the most beneficial actions it really is as though people are attacking the roads because how dare you build roads for us to drive smoothly down and have goods and services brought to us? How dare you do that? It is highly irrational, but it also at the same time does make perfect sense when you look at the scope of American political culture for the last several hundred years and the sort of consistent distrust for public authority. The thing that gets me about that is that I believe that that's actually one of the great traits of the American political culture, of the American character, is a skepticism towards power structures of all kinds. The individualism that connects with that skepticism, I think that's one of our greatest powers and one of the greatest sources of uh, success for the American culture, for the American economy, for the American political system. It underlies our biggest values of liberty and democracy and equality. But it is, in a way, it's, it is run rampant. It's on steroids. And it is unbalanced by a sense of connection to others. It's unbalanced by a sense of social responsibility I should say unbalanced, it's not balanced by those things. There is, there is a lack of balance of other values besides my personal freedom and my disgust and hatred and anger at people who would deign to tell me what to do. Don't tell me that I have to wear a mask in a grocery store, right? Despite the fact that uh, the government's been telling people and companies have been telling people that they have to wear a shirt and they have to wear shoes in a grocery store, and that they have to drive no faster than a particular speed limit on the road. The number of things that we accept that the government actually tells us to do is vast. But I do think that people have a sense of like, yes, that's right, there's so many things that they're telling us to do, I can't take one more. No more. So my appreciation of what the source of outrage is has, I would say, added this extra dimension of, yeah, fundamental centuries-long cultural antipathy towards public power, anti-authoritarianism is the gasoline on the simmering fire already of negativity bias that the pothole problem brings to us. Well, that's a lot. And I know that I have thrown a lot of ideas out there and just really shared with you a lot of the speculations that I've had over the last year and a half. So this is probably a good time to end this episode because we do have uh, weekly episodes for the foreseeable future. The plan is to go for another full year, one episode per week. So it's a good time to wrap up. I just want to thank my new co-host, Zane Emerson, for, as always, he's been doing this already in his capacity as kind of temporary interviewer or occasional interviewer. Uh, I want to thank you for your thoughtful questions, for your preparation for the, the clips that you prepared for me. And I'm going to let you take it home.
1: All right. Thank you very much, Jack. Uh, I'd like to remind our listeners that all these clips came from the very first episode of the Pothole problem podcast. And you can listen to that episode and all the episodes of the back catalog at the website potholeproblempodcast.com.
0: And you can also on the website if you haven't already subscribed to it so that it comes to your device of choice.
1: Before we end, I'd like to make one last little plug for something. I really want to do a listener email podcast because I think that who the people who listen to this show would have some very interesting thoughts on what both me and Jack have to say. So if you want to see that episode in the future, send us an email. The email is jack.miller at pdx.edu that's jack.miller at pdx.edu you can send us your thoughts how the show is impacting you some questions you have for us some comments really anything you want at all and if we gather enough that i may read your listener emails out on for a future episode
0: i will add to that if you have suggestions for people that you would like to hear interviewed that would also be something that you can email to us because I have some ideas for who we're going to interview and Zane has some ideas. But we could always use suggestions and connections there, particularly if there's somebody who you know that other listeners of this podcast would find fascinating and insightful.
1: All right. I'm Zane Emerson.
0: And I'm Jack Miller.
1: Thanks for listening.